before we jump in, uh, to um, we're in a series called Core, and I know lots of us are new to Grace Point, and so one of the things we've been doing over the uh, last week and this week and then for the next several weeks is talking about our values as a community, what shapes us, what drives us and energizes us. Before we do that, I have a couple things. One is, um, I, I neglected to mention this at 9 o'clock, so hopefully we'll get it online, but um, on Thursday evening at 7 at the Bell Court, there's a, a movie, a documentary screening um, called American Heretics, The Politics of the Gospel. Uh, and um, there's going to be a panel. I'm going to be on the panel afterward uh, discussing the film. So if you're free on Thursday night and you'd be interested to come and watch this documentary and then hear some people talk about it, um, that, that's going to happen. So we'd love to see you there at that. And then um, I had this experience this week where how many of you have ever been in a conversation with somebody and then you remember the thing you should have said when you already were gone? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh, it's usually a zinger, like you could have really gotten them with that one. Uh, I had this about the sermon last week. I was driving this week somewhere, and I was just thinking, which I can do both of those at the same time. I know you're impressed, driving and thinking. And I had this thought of the thing I wish I'd have said to sort of sum up. So last week, we looked at our first two values, which were that God is a mystery to be explored, not a doctrine or dogma to be believed. Uh, And then we talked about being the good news is that we're inherently united with God. And what I wish I'd have said last week was this. I think we get confused uh, by experience and explanation. And here's what I mean. The experience of whatever the word we mean, whatever we're talking about when we say the word God, that reality, we confuse the experience of that which is real and um, genuine and infinite with the explanation which isn't infinite. It's finite, right? We, we take the experience and we, we want to make the explanation sort of the same. As, so, so I would say like this, the experience has no expiration date. The explanation will almost always have an expiration date, right? So the way we choose to talk about our experiences of God, we're talking about them in ways that we just have to admit are human categories to try to explain things that we ultimately recognize are mystery to us and that we can't ultimately conquer them or figure them all out. And we spend a lot of time and we've spilled a lot of blood and we've had a lot of debates in church history over explanation and we've neglected experience. And so when we talk about God as a mystery, what we're saying is that mystery, that reality, is something that can be experienced uh, and known, and our explanations will probably always change. There is a reason why, when you turn to the Bible, there are some things our ancestors say about God in there that really resonate and move us, but there are also things our ancestors said in the Bible, uh, which they didn't know they were writing, um, that for us, the expiration date has passed. Right? When you have a tribal deity demanding the blood of uh, essentially genocide, right? that, that's an explanation that has outlived its, its importance. We need to let go of that explanation. And here's what's going to happen too. Um, as we sort of go the way of the dinosaur and future generations come on the scene of our descendants, some of our explanations will no longer work for them. And instead of fastening them to our explanations, I hope we can give them a window into experience. And they may find a different way. I'm really glad we let go of some things our ancestors believed about science, about how the world works. I'm really glad about people. I'm really glad we let, let go of some of those things. And our, I promise you, our descendants are going to look back on us and they're going to be like, oh, they were so prehistoric, <laughs> right? I mean, imagine what they did to the planet. Can you believe they, they did this to the planet and now we're... Can you believe that our ancestors ate meat? I really do think we're going to get there. Now, I, I just want to say, I'm a meat eater. 
but I know they're going to judge me. And I'm okay, because I'll be long gone, and I won't even know. Right? But I do know that there are going to be things that our, ancestors, our descendants look back on and say, our ancestors didn't understand it, because we don't. And so we got to give our ancestors grace, and hopefully our descendants will give us grace, and we'll ultimately spend our time talking about how do we create meaningful experiences with whatever the word God means, as opposed to how do we cram our explanation of what that means down everybody's throat. Does that make sense? Um, I wish I'd have said that last week. Yeah. So today, two more values. We're going to talk about that life is a gift to be enjoyed and the love is a responsibility to be shared. Life is a gift to be enjoyed and love is a responsibility to be shared. Our friend Ryan Meeks from Eastlake Church in Seattle says it like this, life is a gift and love is the point. Uh, we're going to explore what that means for us today. There's a psalm, uh, Psalm 90. There's, uh, there's a verse in this psalm that always uh, it just pops in my head from time to time at, at key moments. Uh, and here's what it says. Teach us to number our days so we can have a wise heart. Teach us to number our days so we can have a wise heart. How many of you have ever been told that your days are numbered? Do people typically say that in a happy fashion? And they're like, your days are numbered. It's usually like, your days are numbered, right? Like, it's a veiled threat. So when we come to this, I mean, it's, it's saying something we already know to be true. Like, in theory, you and I know that at some point, we won't be here, right? I can't imagine that. I can't fathom it. But at some point, you and I will not be here anymore. And somebody else will be running the show, and somebody else will be making the decisions, and somebody else will be cleaning up our mess, right? Like, that's just how it works. Our days are numbered. When we hear this, it can be seen as sort of a panicky, oh my gosh, my days are numbered. I only have so many days left to live. And I think about this as, as I get a bit older, and I realize some of you have shoes older than me, okay? I totally understand that as I'm encroaching on that four zero mark, one of the things I'm aware of is I'm increasingly uh, I'm going to have less time than I had, right? Like I'm at that point in life, I think they call it midlife-ish, where you're looking ahead going, with my family history, I may have already lived half of my life right? Like, that's a thing. I don't think it's um, inviting us to panic about what's left. Like, I only have, what if I only have like 30, 38, 40 years left? What do I do? I think this statement, teach us the number of days, is saying, hey, help. we don't want to fret about what we aren't going to have. We, we want to acknowledge what we do have and live it to the absolute fullest. Teach us to look at our days as a gift, Teach us to see this brief window of time, and it really is. When you think about 14 billion years or whatever the universe is, like the fact that, that, that we're impressed by people who live past 100, like we are a blip on the radar of time. And yet we have come to believe that that blip that we are has significance and meaning, and it's a significance and meaning that transcend our own lifespan, Right? that we can do something, that we can live in such a way that it impacts people outside of our own time and space. So I don't think it's saying, hey, you need to panic and sort of have this midlife crisis and go buy a convertible. Like, I don't think that's what it's saying. If that's your thing, like more power to you, loan it to us when it's nice outside. But I don't think that's what the text is saying. I, I think it's talking about intention. I think it's talking about living with intention. Um, and, and I think that it's really easy not to. Any, anybody else just get in a routine that you just can accomplish every day without thinking about what you're doing? How many of you have ever been in a car and you drove somewhere and you're like, I have no idea how I got here. My body just took me. How many of you? I need to see a show of hands. That's terrifying. 
We're all on the road at the same time, not paying attention. That's what's happening to us, right? But there's sort of like, we just get in the routine. Our bodies, mind, they just take over and we do things without even consciously. We're just sort of hollowing out that grand canyon of a routine in our lives. And it can be so easy to not think about what we're doing or why we're doing it and to just go along. And I think we're being told, teach us a number of days. Teach us to think about how we're actually living our lives. Teach us to think about how to make the most out of the time we have, because life is a gift. Mary Oliver, one of my favorite poets, in her poem, The Summer Day, she ends like this, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Now, if you're in the room and you're like, I believe in reincarnation, okay, you may get more than one, but you're not gonna get this one again, all right? So can we at least meet in the middle on that? Right, you, you, you get this one shot in this life, in this body, in this experience. What are you going to do with it? I know part of some of us are going, well, my life ain't wild. And some days it doesn't feel precious. Right? But that question, what are you going to do with this time you've been given? I think one of the dangers when it comes to seeing life as a gift is that when we fail to see life as a gift, like it's really something we're being given, we can easily slip into an entitlement mode where everything is just owed to us and we walk into a room and expect everybody just to be grateful that we're there. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, look, I'm here, people, right? Like this sort of entitlement that everybody owes me everything. Uh, and when I don't see life as a gift, that everything is being generously given to me as opposed to somehow I am now here and I have earned it and now you have to give it to me. There's a difference in that. And when you develop this entitlement mentality, it can really take away the gift of life, the gift that life actually is. How, how many of you in this room right now had anything to do with your own birth? None of us. How many of you are glad you weren't there when it all started? Like, can we just be honest about that? Like, you're really, really grateful? Yeah, and, and, and the only part you played in your own birth experience was that you just showed up. And when you showed up, you started demanding things of everyone. You demanded to be fed. You demanded to be changed. You demanded to be rocked. You demanded to sleep. You demanded, when we entered this world, we were absolutely useless. I mean, you think about other animals, right? You, you see an animal born, they, they stand up immediately and they run like 100 miles an hour. <laughs> Have you ever watched a human baby try to learn how to walk? It looks like they close down the bar and are walking home is what it looks like. They're just staggering around from place to place. They have no sense of what's going on. I mean, it's like we're really, we're born into the world absolutely helpless. We cannot do anything for ourselves. And people look at us and talk about what a gift we are and how beautiful we are, even if that we're not, right? They tell us that. They, they tell us how great we are. And we had nothing to do. Every single thing you received and I received when we came into this world was pure, gracious gift. And there is no way to repay that. It is just yours. You might not have been, but here you are. And we're all glad you're here, by the way. And so when we think about reframing that life, life is actually a gift, um, I, I had this habit for a long time of uh, liking to take photos of sunsets. Um, I don't do sunrises. I don't know why anybody would, but sunsets are breathtaking. 
And uh, I, I've been really busy, and I haven't been paying attention. And the house we lived in it before, like, I had this great, like, this. And I know the sun doesn't set, okay? I know the earth is spinning, for those of you who need that clarification. I know, I know. But we call it that. And so, uh, anyway, I just haven't had a good shot at a sunset lately. And we were at football practice the other night. Um, I'm one of the coaches for my son's team. And we were practicing, and I saw the sun. It was just fading and it was the sky was orange and yellow and pink and it was absolutely breathtaking I, got, I just snapped a picture I didn't even post it it was just one of those things like I want to remember that I saw that because I'm going to get busy and I'm going to forget and I'm going to get stressed out or something's going to happen and I'm going to need to be reminded oh I got to see that every one of those you get is a gift right everyone you get is a gift I had a friend tell me once he uh it was super morbid he said you know one day you're going to put your socks on and somebody else is going to take them off it's like, that's a bummer. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't do motivational posters. <laughs> We're all going to die. Have a nice day, right? Like, but there's a truth there that one day I will see my last sunset. And I'm trying to forestall that for as long as possible, but it's going to happen. And can you imagine seeing those, that beautiful thing that is just a gift and, and not pausing to say, my goodness, how incredible is it to be here? How incredible is it to be in this world with all these people, with all this gift? Life really is a gift to be enjoyed, but not everybody gets to enjoy it. And this is why we have to talk about love as a responsibility that we all share, because not everybody gets to enjoy. Not everybody has the luxury. It's a very privileged statement to talk about enjoying your life in this world, right? Because what we're saying is that, well, this, can, this is available to everyone, and the reality is that there are people all over the world right now who are dying of preventable disease, who can't get the basic medicine that you and I go to the pharmacy and get for like five or ten bucks. They can't get it and they die. There are people in this world who are dying, not because they've done anything, but because they can't get access to food. And maybe it's because their government is corrupt or maybe it's because whatever. However it happens, lots and lots of people die every day of hunger, mainly women and children, because as the one campaign says, poverty ends up being sexist. And so we live in a world where to say life is a gift to be enjoyed without some sort of caveat that acknowledges that there is a lot of need in the world. And there are a lot of people in the world who cannot enjoy their lives because they are suffering and they are oppressed and they are marginalized and they're not being given their rights and they're not being recognized. And they're being turned away from humanitarian aid. There are real, real problems in the world. And we have to talk about the responsibility we all share to doing, for, for doing something about that. There's this great story in the gospel. Actually, it's one of those stories that is in John that's in the other gospels because that's not common. Uh, it's a story of a mass feeding where Jesus takes very little and feeds a lot of people. And I just want to read you from John 6. Uh, and I want to think through this story for a minute. After Jesus went across the Galilee Sea, that is the Tiberias Sea, a large crowd followed him. They had been, they'd seen the miraculous signs he had been doing among the sick. So Jesus has attracted a group of people because they've seen his, uh, that when Jesus shows up, healing happens that people's lives get better, and that, but things get mended and healed in a beautiful way. And so they just decided to follow Jesus. He went up on a mountain and sat there with his disciples. It was nearly time for Passover, the Jewish festival. Jesus looked up and saw the large crowd coming toward him. He asked Philip, where will we buy food to feed these people? Jesus said this to test him, for he already knew what he was going to do. Don't you hate when people do that? Like when they're asking you some sort of Jedi mind trick question where they already know the answer. My parents would do this to me a lot as a kid. They would ask me a question knowing what I had done, but just wanting me to own it. Anybody else do that to your kids? Yeah, and so Jesus has this, like, he's got a plan, but he asks this guy, Philip, 
hey, where do you think we're going to get enough food to feed all these people? And Philip responds, um, more than a half a year's salary worth of food wouldn't be enough for each person to have even a little bit. Now, if you're Philip, do you wonder why are we responsible for feeding them? Like, it, we didn't even invite them. They're just tagging along. Why aren't they going to feed themselves? And here's what you have to understand. The vast majority, the 99.999% of people who are following Jesus and people who lived in the world Jesus lived in, in Palestine in the first century, almost everybody was impoverished. Almost everybody lived below poverty line. Almost everybody was literally working for their daily bread. You go to work, you get a day's wage, you go buy bread, you feed your family. You get up the next day, you go to work, you get a day's wage. So it's what you call subsistence level, barely surviving barely able to function. Now, if they're all following Jesus around, what are they not doing? They're not going to work, getting their coin, going to the market, buying bread, feeding their families. They've decided that this movement that is coalescing around Jesus is big enough and important enough that they're going to risk hunger and risk their lives, in a sense, to be a part of what this new thing is Jesus is bringing into the world. And so when they go out there, they've been following Jesus all day. When Jesus looks at Philip and says, how are we going to feed them? He's essentially saying, we are responsible. They are following us. We are now responsible for making sure they have enough food to eat. Because if we don't act, they won't eat. And Philip says, well, are you aware that it would take more than half a year's wage to even feed people? And everybody, even then, wouldn't get any, a bit. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, A youth here has five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is this, that for a crowd like this? I mean, you even see the sort of picking it up, this kid offers up his lunch, and they look at it, and it's like a couple fish and five barley loaves, and what we'll find out in a minute is there are 5,000 plus people there. Two fish, barley loaves, 5,000 people. It's sort of what happens um, on Black Friday when they tell you they're going to sell you a TV for 35 cents and then you get in line for six hours and there's like half a TV there and they have people, right? I mean, can you imagine putting out this food and saying, okay, everybody first come, first serve, right? Like that's the thing. So you have a kid there, a youth, a student, and in Jesus' day, children weren't perceived in the same way we do. Like we look at kids and we're like, oh. That's not how they were seen. They weren't sentimentalized in the ancient world. They were really just another mouth to feed. And if they weren't helping bring in money and income, it was a real problem. So this youth offers up a lunch. What good? That's a great question, Andrew says. What good will that be? This is insufficient. What we have to offer isn't enough. You ever, you ever felt like that in your life? Like the, th- the world has all this need. What I have to offer just isn't even going to begin to touch it. Jesus says, uh, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass. Not enough food, plenty of grass, right? So fortunately, there's enough of something. Um, There's plenty of grass. They sat down, about 5,000 of them. I mean, this seems like Jesus is doing some community organizing, right? Like, what are we going to do? All right, everybody get in groups. And if we all get in groups, and when we get in groups, we're going to share what we have. And if we all get in groups and share what we have, something beautiful can happen. When he had given thanks, he distributed it to those who were sitting there. He did the same with the fish, each getting as much as they wanted. When they had plenty to eat, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves that had been left over by those who had eaten. What an interesting turn in the story. Right? That 
They all sit down, 5,000 or so, and Jesus takes this five barley loaves, two fish, gives thanks, like, thanks, and then begins to distribute it. And as he distributes it, it doesn't run out. It just keeps going. And it keeps going in such a way that everybody there has all they can eat. And then there are leftovers. And so he says, hey, let's pick this up. Now, I think the miracle here is not that, that something magical happened with some loaves and fishes. I think the miracle here, first of all, is that somebody was willing to give up their lunch. Right? Somebody was willing to take their security and instead open it up to the community and say, this isn't just my thing. This is not just about me getting enough. This is about us having enough. Right? There's a beautiful thing there. There's another detail in the story that I just did not see for years. Uh, and I was actually doing a talk on this passage. And at the end of the talk, I uh, kind of opened it up for questions and responses and those kind of things. And there was a woman in the community who raised her hand and said, have you ever noticed the 12 baskets? I was like, oh, yeah, 12 basketfuls picked up. I mean, what does that represent? It represents the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Jesus is making sort of, some sort of statement about what he's doing for the 12 tribes. She was like, yes, but. <laughs> um, have you ever thought about where, whose baskets those were? Like, who, who would have had 12 baskets? Fun fact. How many disciples were there? Twelve. How many baskets were there? Twelve. She says, is it possible? Because in the ancient world, um, the way you would travel in Palestine in the first century is you would take a basket of food with you on the journey because you never know when you're going to get let out into the wilderness by some preacher. Right? So you want to make sure, if you're going to do some wilderness wandering with a preacher, because you never know how long those folks are going to talk, you've got to have an extra little bit of food. So you would take a basket of food with you, and you would be able to eat it and your provisions along the way. The people following Jesus didn't have that, but it's very possible his disciples did. And the thing she points out is they're sitting there with 12 baskets, and none of them says, I've got stuff. It's this kid who says, I actually brought something and I'm willing to share it with everybody. 12 baskets, 12 baskets of food. I mean, the disciples were super eager to use their baskets at the end, right? Like, this is awesome, we'll eat for a week. And yet, something happens in the story. It's not the people you would expect to be the first to open up their baskets to share. It's this person who actually would, would probably think they had nothing to share. After all, the need is great and I only have five loaves and two fishes. What could I do here. And yet it was when he opened his basket that there was enough to go in everybody's basket. I think there's something there. Life is a gift to be enjoyed, but the only way that happens is when we see love, and I don't mean sentimentalized, just romantic rom-com kind of love. I'm talking about the kind of love that sees pain and suffering in the world and cannot sit back but must act in compassion. Love that is in solidarity with the marginalized and oppressed. The kind of love that calls us out of comfort and out of what is easy and out of what is known and out of what is safe and actually to do something in the world to transform uh, the, the situation that real people are in. When we see love, that kind of love, as a responsibility we all share, it creates a radical difference in how the world works. Can you imagine, I mean, imagine yourself today with a basket. And in that basket is all your stuff. All of your creativity, all of your intelligence, all of your resources, time, energy, money, all that stuff. And just imagine it's a full basket. Like I, I, know, I know sometimes we feel like, oh, I don't even have enough to fill up half a basket. Let's just, for the argument's sake, say so you've got a full basket sitting in your lap. 
what does it look like to, to be the young youth, this kid in this story? What does it look like to enter the world seeing love as a responsibility that we share so that everybody can have a life that they, brings them joy? And I don't mean just enjoy in the sense of it's all fun, and, but what I mean is a life that is fulfilled and meaningful, a life that is not uh, marked by scarcity and lack, but a, a life that every need that you have is met and you're actually able to help other people in the world meet their needs, right? That, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. What would it look like for us to begin to open our baskets to share with the people around us? Because I promise you, in this room right now, there's somebody who needs something that is in your basket. And that may be a handshake, and that may be a hug, and that may be feeling like you've seen them. It may be giving them an opportunity to tell you what's going on in their life. I don't know what that looks like. It may be a hot meal. I don't know what that looks like. But I guarantee you there are people in this room who need exactly what you have in your basket. And in just a little bit, we're going to sing a song. We're going to turn you loose into the world. And you're going to take your basket out there with you. And you're going to have to make decisions this week about how you're going to share what's in that basket. Because what the world needs is absolutely in your basket. You don't lack anything. If it's in there, it means that it's in there and there's a need that it can meet. If love is a responsibility to be shared, if life is a gift, if it's going to be a gift for everyone, everyone, then we have to see love as our responsibility. And we have to see our opportunities to open up our basket and say, you know what? Doesn't seem like much, but five loaves and two fishes has worked before. It actually doesn't seem like that what needs to be worked with is anything extraordinary. Like, I, I know what we think. When, you, when we watch the news and we see things that people do in the world and that are heroic, we think, I'm not that hero. I'm not that person. But literally, opening your basket and extending kindness, opening your basket and buying someone groceries, opening your basket and giving some of your time to mentor a, an at-risk kid, that is everything. And we've been walking around for so long, many of us thinking we have nothing in here to offer when you are the gift. Your life, your experiences, your heart, you are the gift. And only when we open ourselves up, I mean, we just took Eucharist, right? We took bread and we took wine and body broken, blood poured out for others. Like that's what we're talking about. It's going into the world and being the meal. It's going into the world and being broken open and poured out so that the people around you can eat and drink maybe for the first time in a very, very long time. You have everything you need. You don't need anything else. There's areas we can all improve. I'm sure I could take a class on something and will. But outside of any of that, right now, everything you need is inside of you and it's in your basket and you can go give it to the world. And when we do that, when, when the Christian tradition stops showing up and demanding things from people, but instead we show up with the, the good news that you are inherently united with God, that you have always been God's beloved and that you are not alone, that we have something to offer the world, I really believe everything will change. I really believe transformation is possible. I, I think life is a gift to be enjoyed, every single breath of it. But that only becomes possible when we all see love as our responsibility that we share together, that as we extend it into that, we open our hands to the world, as we share what's in our basket, we begin to actually believe that this thing isn't beyond help, that this world isn't going to hell in a handbasket, but that actually there's some good that's happening, and actually if we... Focus on that and mobilize that, and if we all share what we have, the world can be transformed. Are you with me? All right.
Let's pray. Actually, I just want to invite you right now for just a minute to imagine you have a basket right there in your lap. And I want, I want you to imagine what's in it. Kindness, compassion, your resources, your time, your energy, your money, your creativity, your hopes and your dreams, all that stuff's in that basket. I want you to imagine yourself as we leave in just a little bit, carrying that out into the world, just like the kid in this story. Feeling like what, maybe what's in there is inadequate, but knowing that you have to do something, that you have to act, that something has to happen. God, as we hold these baskets in our hearts and in minds, as we think about what we have to offer the world, as we think about our role in sharing the responsibility of love so that every human being on this planet can experience a life, life as a gift to be enjoyed. Give us the courage. Give us the courage to not accept our excuses about why it can't be us. Give us the courage to ask the hard questions of ourselves. Give us the courage to open up our hearts to one another and to the world around us. We're grateful for this Jesus who can take very little and do amazing things with it. And what we bring today to us may seem insufficient, but in the right hands can feed the multitude. We offer these things in the name of Jesus and we're grateful. And everybody said, amen.